Good afternoon. Since we can't have Thursday Bible study and we haven't had it for a long time, Sarah and I are holding a little Bible study in the basement of our house, which still has cardboard boxes all over it because uh, we're still unpacking. But it's we're getting, getting better though. It is getting better, although you know we still have uh, this and that here and there. But uh, yeah, at least most of the stuff is out of the garage now. Mm-hmm. And um, now with all the, now with me working at home, you know, I can spare a little time to finish up uh, putting stuff up and putting stuff away. We were going to read the second letter of Peter in our Bible study, but that of course took a back seat when this coronavirus thing hit. And so we want to somehow keep Thursday Bible study going in some way. So Sarah and I are going to try this. We're going to try a a little podcast that you might be able So we hope you can hear it, that you'll be able to access it. Um, And we're just going to give this a shot and see how it goes. Today we're going to read the second letter of Peter chapter 1. Let me give you a brief introduction before we get into the scripture itself. And once you know it, I don't have my notes up. And I have to, and I'm using the iPad now, so it takes a moment. And of course, I just have the Greek Bible up, not the English. And I'm using an NIV. Okay, that's good to know. Sarah has NIV. And I know one of the benefits of having a lot of different translations is that you can get closer to an approximation of what the scripture might actually have said. And And the different nuances. And the different nuances. Of the translators. That's absolutely true. So I'm pulling that up here, 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'm also pulling up an introduction. And this introduction is from the New Interpreter's Study Bible. And this is written by Donald Sr., who is a Roman Catholic, uh, very, very important New Testament scholar. So he, he's, had, uh, he's had quite a long and illustrious career. So this is his, this is his introduction. The formal tone, style and stiff polemical tone of this brief book helped to rank it among the least read of the biblical canon. Again, it's one of those little forgotten books, right? Mm -hmm. Yet it grapples with profound and enduring theological issues such as God's providence and the destiny of the world. The letter claims of authorship by the Apostle Peter, but even more emphatically than in the case of 1 Peter, most interpreters doubt that the Apostle was the actual author. This is somewhat paradoxical, since 2 Peter contains more biographical references than does 1 Peter, especially the author's claim to be an eyewitness to the transfiguration. Yet the formal Greek style of the letter, the reference to Paul's letters, and to an apparently past generation of apostles, and the the probable use of the letter of Jude as a source are all arguments against Peter's having been the actual author, and the probability that as with First Peter, this is a pseudonymous work that cites the authority of the apostle, but was written by a later generation in his name. Now, I will point out something that Bart Ehrman, another 
biblical scholar has also pointed out, and that the whole, the whole, this whole issue with pseudonymous works in the New Testament, and a lot of letters most scholars think are, are pseudonymous. There are there are several letters of Paul that the vast majority of scholars think are genuine, but there are a, a, a few that scholars hold in doubt, like the First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. Um, Colossians, Ephesians, those those are under doubt. And the way that that you explain this, you could explain this by saying it's scribes. Scribes who were who were taking down letters, because these apostles would have used scribes in that time. And it is very plausible to say that Peter would have used a scribe writing good Greek, especially if we remember from his last letter, he was writing to the tribes in the dispersion, those who were scattered beyond the borders of Palestine. So it, it, it's not too far, it's, it's not a crazy argument. The scholarly consensus is still that this letter is pseudonymous, but there is a possibility that it, that it could have its root in, in Peter himself. Uh, my own opinion, I'm kind of on the fence. Uh, I, I don't know, but the fact is is that this is a this is scripture, and so we 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 get to deal with it, and I think it does have some interesting things to say. So I'm not going to read the just uh, this this letter is concerned with with being a farewell discourse. So the letter I'm continuing with seniors. Introduction. The letter takes the form of a valedictory or farewell letter written by the apostle, urgently reminding the recipients of the traditional teaching they have inherited and warning them against false teachers who undermine that tradition and attempts to lead them astray. So, the letter may be outlined here as follows. First, number one is greeting and reflection on the power of God's promises and the authentic witness of Peter. That's from 1, 1 to 21. The second one is the treachery and error of the false teachers. That's chapter 2. Teaching and exhortation about the coming day of the Lord, which is 317. It looks like chapter 3. And the concluding doxology, 318. So we're just going to read chapter 1 today and talk about it a little bit. And Sarah, why don't you pick it up? Chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, 
They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and, if, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow clearly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Great. So there's a lot happening in that first chapter. What are some of the things you're noticing, Sarah? Well, he talks about how the, the things he was there for, the transfiguration, for mm -hmm. instance, and that these things that he has described to them are real. Yeah. Yeah, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, or what? What does your NIV Stories. say? Stories. Stories. Yeah, mine cleverly is cleverly invented. Yeah, mine is uh, NRSV. That's what I'm reading from. So, yeah, there, he's he's really trying to say we we didn't make this stuff up, and we're not lying to you. No, that sounds a lot like Paul. I have to say, by the he says a few times in his letters. I think at 2 Corinthians, especially, you know, he swears by God that he is not lying in 2 Corinthians. So again, we talked about how 1 Peter sounds a lot like Paul. Again, this is something, this is something in that line. We're not lying. We're telling you the truth. We saw it. What else do you see that's going on? And and going along those lines the prophets didn't make it up either no this is again continuing in that line of Israel so this isn't a again this isn't just a new thing remember in the ancient world and throughout most of the history of the church truth has never been seen as a new thing truth is always old so when someone is acute in th and throughout church history, and even back in the time when the New Testament was being written, when someone was accused of innovation, of making stuff up, they would always point to an older tradition. They would, and in this case, Peter does that. He says, well, we're, this is just confirming the message of the prophets. This is nothing 
this is nothing new. Uh, this is this is right in line with with the faith of Israel. So, and we our own tradition does that. Mm -hmm. There are many things in our services that we can point to something older. Mm -hmm. Your alb, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the alb is a is a garment that that would have been worn for everyday wear back in back in the Roman times, you know, you would have that one piece, one piece thing, and now we've made it pretty symbolic. It's also, it's also linked to the book of Revelation, where you have the army of, of well, the, the multitude that's, that no one can count in white, and that's where that comes from. And I do have to say as well that we have a baby upstairs who is trying to take a nap, but this could be, this could be stopped at any time, so we can take care of her, and then we'll come back to it later. So that's happening right now. But we'll see if she'll go back to sleep or not. Now what else is going on in here? Well, he gives a whole list of things that they should value. Yeah, lots of a lot, lot of uh, virtues. Let me talk about first. Yeah, the, before we get to those virtues, we hear how in chapter 4, thus God has given us through these things his precious oh, and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. Participants in the divine nature. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church has a concept called theosis, which is exactly that. It isn't becoming God, but it is more becoming one with divine nature, really. It isn't going back to the source. You still remain a creature and God remains God. But it is sharing in God's nature. Athanasius may have put it best, uh, even though this is so easily misunderstood. God became man so that man might become God. And what Athanasius meant was so that human beings might take on, put on that divine nature. So I... Yeah. Well, and in that list of virtues, they list godliness. Right, exactly. Which is one of those things that you hear a lot about, but it's kind of hard to break down. Yeah. What do we mean when we say be godly? So what do we mean when we say be godly? Well, let's look at these Let's look at these virtues. So each trait is connected to and is built up, builds up another. So we have good, goodness, which is arete in, in Greek, knowledge, which is gnosis. Uh, you, you might know that from Gnostic, uh, that's those Gnostic sects claim to be those who knew the secret knowledge that would uh, enable them to be saved. Self-control endurance, godliness, Eusebia, Eusebia, uh, brotherly love, the word is Philadelphia, there, it's, uh, we sometimes, my, my translation has mutual affection, yours has brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, it's Philadelphia, it's brotherly love, and so the last one is agape, just straightforward mm -hmm. agape, which is, remember that Greek has four words for love, yeah, storge, storga, um, 
Filio, Eros, and Agape. And they have different functions, different kinds of love. Yeah, but what is godliness? Well, you know, we, we, we say that in our baptismal rite, too, that so-and-so may live a godly life. What, what are we talking about? Most literally, it would be to be like God. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what aspects of God are we talking about? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about taking on God's power and responsibility upon ourselves, necessarily. What might we be talking about instead? Some of the things that are on this list, to be quite honest. Sure. Kindness, mm -hmm. love, regard for those weaker than us. Mm -hmm. Right. And, of course, there's, you know, the Sunday school answer is always God or Jesus. But when we talk about godliness, we should probably look, talk about what Jesus did and what his, what his life tells us about God. Since Jesus is God in the flesh. You know, that would be, I would think, would be our main source for what godliness might look like. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of things there with Jesus' life, life and ministry, such as anger at injustice with the mm -hmm. temple. We're going to get to that. We're going to, at our reading this Sunday, it comes from the Gospel of Mark, and it's the... It's chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, and it's the chapter where, it's, it's the section of Mark where the woman anoints Jesus' feet with nard, and people are really upset. The, in Mark, Judas isn't singled out. That's only in John's telling mm -hmm. of the story. But it's an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus' feet with nard, and uh, she pours out that whole jar of ointment on him. And he says, you know, he says, leave her alone. She's done a great service for me. I tell you, whatever, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And uh, in somewhat twisted irony, this passage never appears in the Revised Common Lectionary, ever. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if we look at what Jesus does, first he prays, so he praises this, he, he, this woman performs a supreme act of service for him. You know, the disciples often don't get what's going on. They don't get who Jesus is. The demons do, but the disciples do not. And only select a select few, it seems, get who Jesus is. And this woman who anoints Jesus, remember who else were, was anointed. Kings were anointed in mm -hmm. Scripture, and anointing was also done in preparation for burial. So... This woman gets it, even though uh, the disciples, those who are closest to Jesus, do not. Not at the time, anyway. Mm -hmm. And I've seen the identity of Mary of Bethany ascribed to her, although we don't know that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, and interestingly enough, in the Mark story, this isn't in the house of Mary and Martha. That's in John. Mm -hmm. This is in the house of Simon the leper. Whoever that is. Mm -hmm. Someone called Simon the Leper. So. Which I've also heard could have been their father. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, so it's possible, but we don't know. I mean, there were a million Simons out there. Yeah, it was a very <laughs> common name. <laughs> along, with, uh, along with Jesus, and which is also the same name as Joshua. And mm -hmm. 
Joseph, all those names were very common. All the Marys. Yeah. <laughs> so we have all these godly characters, or, or we might call them virtues, right? And each trait is built, connected to, and builds up another. I want to point, look at verse 10 for a second, and I'm wondering what your, your verse there says. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. Yeah, maybe all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. So we're going to talk a little bit about the concept of election mm -hmm. and what that is about. So election, that God saves. Basically, that's it. God chooses God's people that we can do nothing. That we cannot, that we cannot choose God. God chooses us. Calvinist? That, no, no. It's it's actually very Lutheran. Okay. And it, 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 it and it's very scriptural. It goes okay. back. Uh, I'm going to go back in, in it's in it's everywhere in Scripture. For instance, beginning in Genesis, God elects one family to be the means, the bearer of salvation for the whole world. There is a chosen people. There are a chosen people. That's right. You know, if God elects certain people from that family to be the bearers of the promise, Isaac is elected, not Ishmael. Jacob is elected, not Esau. Now, that's hard for us to, to wrap our minds around and to understand why God would choose some and not others, at least uh, because it, it, it rubs, it, it can be offensive. I think that, that this is something that can be very hard for us to accept. And Lutheran theologian Gerhard Ferdi would say, well, that just, that just demonstrates the whole doctrine of how much, you know, you hate it so much. Your will is bound to hate it. <laughs> you... well, and we don't inherit, the firstborn doesn't inherit things like they used to. No. But there is no. still a sense in many families, including ours, that the firstborn has a place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting you bring up the firstborn, Sarah, because often the firstborn in Scripture is the one who, who is not elected, so to speak. Exactly. You know, isn't that, it's, it's usually the younger son. So Jacob is the younger son. He's grabbed, Isaac is the younger son. Mm -hmm. Jacob is the younger son. Uh, Benjamin is the youngest son. And then you have, you know, Jacob's own sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and I, I can't remember which one. There, they were the twins. Joseph's. Yeah, they were Joseph's. Jacob blesses one over the other. Jacob, even Joseph says, no, 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 switch your hands. This one is the oldest one, not that one. But Jacob says, nope, that's the one. <laughs> so it's... Well, and Jacob seemed to play his sons against each other. Yeah, a little bit. He wasn't... Poor a... Reuben never really got what he might have as the no. firstborn. He wasn't really a good father. But then again, we can't really judge him. I mean, how can we judge him? Clear favoritism. <laughs> yeah. really brought down Joseph. Yeah, it sure did. But, you know, again, going, uh, going along with this sense of election, J Joseph says, you intended it for evil. To the brothers, but God intended it for good. So there is a sense that God was even behind the brothers' actions. Mm -hmm. G 
Jesus chooses his people. He makes that clear in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16. I tell you, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Uh, Paul and the other New Testament writers talk about election. You know, this verse in these verses in Ephesians, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. So this sense is that God does certainly act and God does elect God's people. God saves, full stop. We have no part in our salvation. But there is also something that we're called to do at the same time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that to, to confirm your election and your call, you know. So show the world that you really are God's people. To channel, um, I think it's, is it Bonhoeffer that talks about cheap grace? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there is no cheap election. No, it costs, it costs God absolutely everything, doesn't it? No, it's, it's too, it's, it's a paradox. And that's one of the paradoxes that, that we get to deal with as Christians and especially as Lutheran Christians. Luther's great treatise on the bondage of the will talks about this. Our will is bound precisely because our will does what it wants to do. You know, we we're, it's bound to itself. It's addicted to itself. We're addicted to ourselves and to sin. That's exactly why the will is bound. It can only be set free by Christ. Uh, so that's when we're talking about election, we're talking about, we're talking about how God saves. And God, God saves fully through God's action. If any part of if any part of it is left up to me, I am I am doomed. I am damned to hell. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it becomes then everything depends on that little bit, doesn't it? Everything depends on that little bit. And again, I'm mm -hmm. I'm channeling thirty again, but you know that's uh, that's one of the, the things that has really stuck with me. This isn't a call for quietism or just you know do whatever you want because that is exactly what shows that the will is bound, but it is a, a call to live as the elected people of God that, that you have already been mm -hmm. chosen to be. But not to rest in your elected status. No, You know, it's kind of like what Paul says about grace, that so should I sin all the more so grace may abound. No, no, and that's, Paul says that's exactly what happened in the letter to the Romans, but that's not an excuse to keep on doing it. <laughs> and uh, in fact, Paul does talk a great deal about election in Romans, in Romans 8 and 9. And some of those, some of those verses are very hard, very offensive. I think that's, should, and rather... And in some cases, they have been twisted. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They've been used as, especially anti-Semitic ammunition. Um, so, which is not Paul's intent at all. But throughout church history, it's been that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Abigail's still yelling. Um, She's probably getting hungry. Probably so. So, why don't we wrap up? We're looking at we're looking at twelve through fifteen here, and. 
you know, Peter says, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, even though you already know them. That sounds a lot like Paul in 1 Thessalonians. You know, I have no need to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> I'm going to remind you. Yeah. You know, we all need reminding yeah. at times. Yeah. Absolutely. I will refresh your memory. And he also says, I know that my death is going to come soon. And he's basically, this is a, I'm getting my affairs in order for your benefit. Mm -hmm. After my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I wonder how he knew death was coming. Well, looking at this. Tradition says that he was crucified, correct? Right. Upside down mm -hmm. by the order of Nero. So that's the, that's, that's the tradition. And he probably did die in Rome. Mm -hmm. it, it, in this letter, you know, he says, Since I know that my death will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, where after Jesus asks Peter three times, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? He says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he's hurt. And then he... he then Jesus tells him, basically says, you know, there will be a time when you were young, you were able to go wherever you wished. And then there will be a time when you will not, you will, someone will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. You know, and then John adds that side note that this is, he was telling how Peter was going to die, the death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Peter turns to the beloved disciple and says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus says, that's none of your business. It's like a child <laughs> really... being punished by a parent. It's like, well, what about Yeah, my what's brother? going to happen to him? Yeah, well, what do you care? <laughs> do what you need to do. Follow me. You know, do what do what I call you to do. Not what you need to do. Not not your bound will. You know, the will of, the will of Christ within you, right? Um, the will of the Spirit. So that... Anything else on chapter one? I think Abigail's getting pretty insistent. Yeah, I think so too. I think I've got that's everything. Okay. Well, Sarah and I are going to continue to do this uh, every week. Uh, we're going to see what happens here. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, looks like we need to get get to Abigail. So we'll close with a brief prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us here to study your word, and we pray that by the the Spirit that you would open the scriptures to our understanding. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, see you next time.